Today, reaction to the Martin Luther King Paseo vote in Kansas City and a deep conversation about the politics in Johnson County, Kansas after Election Day. I'm Dave Helling of the Kansas City Star's editorial board. You are on Deep Background. And welcome to Deep Background for November 6, 2019. I'm Dave Helling with the Star's editorial board. My uh, friend and colleague uh, and co-host, Leah Becerra, is on assignment, as they say. So it's just me today. And Sarah Ritter, uh, uh, who reports on Johnson County for the Star, will join us in just a moment to talk about the fascinating results from Tuesday, but also what's going on in Johnson County and the suburbs politically, the the changes that we're seeing and what may, uh, may be down the road. We'll visit with her on that. Before we do that, though, we did have a chance. We spent last week's podcast talking about the Martin Luther King Paseo controversy, and uh, the vote, as you may know, was overwhelmingly to rename it Paseo and take the Martin Luther King, uh, King name uh, off of that street. Um, we had a chance this morning to visit with Mayor Quentin Lucas about that decision and the next steps, and we want to listen to a little bit of that, and then we'll talk with Sarah. Here's Mayor Lucas. I, I do think that there is a substantive attachment to the Paseo. Um, it is a very uniquely named street. Uh, it's a long street. It's one that most in Kansas City know, um, even if many in Kansas City haven't uh, driven on it or, or been near it for some number of years. And so I do think that this was largely a substantive respect for history, um, we like the Paseo, there's a better, in our view, Martin Luther King honor that can be created. What makes us think we're not going to go through this again? I agree. And I don't, that's, that's the... That the people on 63rd Street... Right, that's the farce of the requirement, of the 75% requirement. Because I could see almost immediately, you know, maybe there are enough commercial owners and the city owns a lot of land on 63rd Street that maybe we could just oh my gosh, force the change again. Yeah. But the problem is that's, that's the challenge of, of name changes. And that's why at a certain point, to Bill's question from before, even after we've convened the best group, even after we've had 20 community meetings, if we pick a street again, if we're picking something that actually exists, there will be frustration and there will be some level of friction. There will be someone who has to change a driver's license. There will be someone who says, well, it makes sense because I know 63rd Street is here. I don't know what number Arno is, for example. Um, and that's, that is something that I think we'll have to look at. So realistically, I think the real solution, Bill, and others that we'll see is probably a parks board type of decision where there's more money that's put into perhaps the Martin Luther King Park that's near 71 Highway and Brush Creek. And we fancy up the park and we do a lot of investment there because as I sit and look at it, that's incredibly non-controversial. Um, everyone will seemingly be pleased and that's the way it'll go. Whether that's the best honor, who knows, but... Mr. Strack said a notion that the point of view on this, as ministers hold this, that this whole thing has left a uh, mark or a stain on the city's reputation. It's on the New York Times website, first thing you want. You know, um, maybe, but uh, I've been black and lived in this city a long time, and there are, there are lots of things that I find more troubling than this. And so, I think what we need to do is 
figure out a way to not just honor Dr. King, but make sure we're honoring a diverse set of of leaders and frankly, not just leaders and figures that everybody agreed are acceptable to honor. Um, and that's what I want to see as a next step. So th for me, the issue is not so much what uh, we did yesterday, but how we move forward. I say that recognizing that the New York Times probably won't care if we fix up Martin Luther King Park. That again, Mayor Quentin Lucas of Kansas City talking about what's next uh, on the Paseo and on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk with Sarah Ritter about Johnson County politics. Stay with us. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a Deep Background listener. Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal, plus you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to kansascity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. And welcome back. We're joined now by Sarah Ritter, the uh, astonishingly good reporter for Johnson County here at the Star. Sarah, it's so good to have you on Deep Background for the first time. It's your first appearance here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be on for yeah, the first great. time. Well, you've written some great stories that we need to talk about, but let's in general, review the results from Tuesday's elections. We can't obviously go through every municipality and um, but I was struck today by your story that a lot of challengers won and incumbents fell, particularly in some races we were paying attention to. Walk us through that. A, is that true? And B, do you have a sense of why it might have happened? Yeah, I think if you're skeptical and follow local municipal elections, you often uh, think that the incumbents will always win, and it kind of is the trend. That was definitely not the case in Johnson County this time around. Um, a lot of incumbents lost their seats. I was honestly kind of surprised by it. Um, Overland Park, two incumbents lost. Two longtime incumbents lost on the water board, which was talked about a lot as kind of... Right, stunningly for, so. <laughs> exactly, for once getting attention when people don't think about it. Um, Shawnee, Prairie Village, Fairway even, which doesn't get much attention, lost right, some incumbents. Right. So, yeah, it really was. There is kind of a shift going on, and I think there are different reasons for it in every city. I think... Overland Park is maybe the most interesting where residents are really getting involved and they're speaking out about a lot of development projects. Right, that, which we want to come back to in a little bit. Exactly. But do you, I, I was struck, I live in Johnson County, I was struck by how closely people seem to be watching this election. Typically municipal off-year elections uh, are ignored and the turnout wasn't huge, but the people who did participate were paying a lot of attention. Was that your experience? Mm, I think so. And it's my first election covering Johnson County, so maybe I can't speak right. to it too well. But, 
You know, I think there has been kind of this trickling down effect of what's happening at the national level of people in the suburbs, specifically a lot of women ran this time um, more than usual, and a lot of women won, um, you know, and college educated women kind of being vocal after the 2016 election. I think a lot of people are attributing it to that um, and kind of what happened at the national level. I think, you know, statewide politics, we're kind of seeing this wave of more Democrats come in and these are supposed to be nonpartisan elections, but as we've reported on, um, you know, obviously there's party influence there and the parties don't, inf don't endorse candidates, but they do um, advertise their preferred candidates. And there was a long list of Democrats this time, which was noticeable. Um, so I think some people attributed it to that. Um, I didn't see any big blue wave of candidates, but you did see a lot of these long time Republicans in some seats losing um, their positions. Um, so whether you can attribute it to party politics, I don't know, but you know, I do think there was a lot of interest and I think people are getting engaged and maybe it's you know the suburbs following some of the things Kansas City residents have been upset about, like tax breaks and different things right, that we've right. written about. And the other part of that though is, it's a tough time to be an incumbent. I mean, at all levels, people increasingly distrust government and arguably distrust the people who have been in their seats, particularly those who've been there for some time. We saw a little of that with Ann Merguia in, in Wyandotte County, but in Johnson County too, people, not everyone, but people who have served for some time were defeated. That's because, in my view, people are paying attention, aren't they? And, and the more they pay attention, the more incumbents sort of have to face the voters rather than just rely on, well, everybody knows who I am. Hmm. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think definitely in some races that was the case. I think waterboard, you could definitely see that where, oh, we didn't realize that my Republican state senator who represents me has also been representing uh, me on the waterboard and several other boards. I heard some residents say, well, maybe we should mix it up a little right, bit and right. have different That was Robert Olson, correct? Yeah, 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 which I was honestly kind of surprised that he lost his seat there. I think a good example is in Overland Park. Um, maybe the greatest upset, in my opinion, um, of the night was um, Scott Hamblin unseating Rick Collins um, in Overland Park, a longtime city council member who served, I think, starting in 2011. Um, and I was not expecting that. And he decided to run for office after getting into a lawsuit with the city over eminent domain um, when the city condemned his property for a road project. Right. Um, and he wasn't he won. happy about that. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, I think that's a good example of when things get to your backyard, you yeah. start to realize how the city works. But also, the, also, the other thing is the, the suburbs are changing a little bit, too. I mean, the idea of sort of a homogenous moderate Republican uh, electorate seems to be on the wane, in part because challenges in places like Overland Park and Roland Park and some of the inner ring suburbs are pretty large. I mean, the aging housing stock and you know infrastructure, the very problems that urban areas have been dealing with for some time have come to suburban areas, and it's, those problems are not easily solved. Yeah, I think you're definitely spot on there. And I think we saw kind of both sides of that kind of advancing in different ways. I think there's the older population that they're angry that they're getting aged out and they're getting priced out because housing is too expensive. Um, and then they also, you know, they moved to the suburbs to get away from downtown Kansas City and sort of these really dense populations. And now the suburbs are getting more dense and they're, you know, bringing in development. They're competing over business and trying to, you know, get jobs and, all of the cities are growing in population, but yeah, so you have kind of the different interests yeah, yeah. conflicting there. Okay, let's move a little bit. I want to move past the election and talk more broadly about the development issues you've written about. But 
Talk to me a little bit about the community college trustees, which was also a well-watched race, even though typically that's kind of a walk in the park. We got a bit of a mixed message from the results last night, but people are paying attention to Johns County Community College, aren't they? Yeah, I would say it was the most closely watched race because in the primary, 11 people were running for the three seats, um, and then that was narrowed down to six. Um, and it was kind of what I would expect from a typical election of this size where the two incumbents did, were the top vote-getters and did win. Um, and then someone who's really gained kind of nonpartisan support, I think. She's been advertised by the Democratic Party, but um, Laura Smith Everett, had, she also succeeded, um, which was not too much of a surprise. So I think that was more of an example of keeping the status quo. Um, Maybe people weren't as engaged in voting as they were in running for that for some reason. But um, yeah, with the college president stepping down, the next board will have to choose that president. Right, that's an important uh, position on the board now. As that college grows, and it's been controversial, not only because of the president, but the problems with the track, and people were angry about that, and mm -hmm. just the whole expansionary nature of that campus has worried some people. Yeah. Uh, didn't really translate into sort of a throw the bums out attitude is what you're telling us. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it kind of is in other elections as well where residents nearby and faculty and students just feel like they haven't been involved in decision making. And so the track program going away was you know, people were blindsided by that, I right, think, right, and that right. really upset them. And so I think that's where a lot of engagement came from. But I also think that the incumbents just, they have, you know, kind of a stronghold over, um, I don't know if they're good at advertising or marketing themselves or campaigning. Well, yeah, just uh, my own observation is Greg Musil ran for Congress. So his name is very well known well-respected in the community, fair, and was he did have a little bit of a stumble at the end of the campaign, making an unfortunate reference to a transgender person or some, yes. gen, some, some issue involving a transgender uh, person. Uh, but other than that stumble, he seems, uh, my guess is people knew who he was and have supported his approach to the college other than that little thing. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how much that hurt him, but yeah, he said the next college president, she, he, or it, yeah, I think, right. and then had to apologize for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he clearly still has support, so it's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what the voters decided. Yeah. Okay, let's move beyond the election, uh, Sarah, and talk a little bit about some of the stuff you've written about development policy. I think a lot of it's in Overland Park, but it's broadly an issue. I wrote an editorial. I live in Lenexa, and there have been enormous subsidies for some of the developments over in West Lenexa, uh, including hotels and apartments, that type of thing. And um, uh, but Overland Park is also the focus of, the, uh, focus of this, and you cannot drive down Metcalf and not look around and say, "Wow, uh, you know the the changes are just dramatic." But not everybody is happy with them, are they? Yeah, yeah. And interesting, you mentioned Lenexa. Lenexa is another one that I haven't written about much, but a lot of people are getting upset over yes. um, tax breaks being given to developers for that and kind for of luxury apartments and exactly. you know when affordable housing is an issue. And we've written a little bit about that. Let's stay with Overland Park. We can go to Lenexa. Yeah, there is a sense that what used to be an issue just in Kansas City, Missouri, which is writing big taxpayer support checks for projects, is now coming to the suburbs, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, yeah, you could definitely argue that. I think, you know, with the past spring election in Kansas City, that being a big issue, it now became a big issue here. It also, in the 2017 mayoral election in Overland Park, it was a big issue, development interests. 
Um, but yeah, it really played out kind of fascinatingly um, in this election where two incumbents were unseated, which I honestly did not expect. I expected one to be because the primary showed that. Terry Happershire was by Holly Grummert, who just has really good community support. She has some name recognition. She's been more cautiously against incentives, um, but she definitely is one who is a little bit more critical about them. Um, and then, like I mentioned, Rick Collins was unseated um, by a very sort of more anti-development type person. And I don't think that anybody is saying no incentives any of the time. Um, I think Ferris Farisadi, who won re-election, has kind of brought this issue to light more than anybody, has been the loudest about it. Um, and he, he won re-election, and I think in large part that is because he typically votes no on every project, but he does, he did vote, an example would be Metcalf Crossing, where there's two crime-ridden, dilapidated hotels that everybody wants to get down, and he did approve tax incentives to get that done. So he doesn't always vote no. I don't think anybody is saying we're going to vote no all of the time, but they are saying that you know, where can you find blight in Overland Park easily? And, you know, should luxury apartments get incentives when, you know, there's a growing homeless population and people are on the Section 8 waiting list and we don't have affordable housing and retail is failing? Should we be incentivizing that and trying to get more retail and these different things? So, you know, Ferris Farisadi is interesting. He actually benefits from incentives on the Missouri side. Um, he's developing uh, in a, his surgical office building. Um, but again, it's on truce, so he argues that's blighted. So he right. kind of, you know, he is the loudest against incentives, but he also, you know, isn't always a no-vote. To give us a sense of where the, you think the public is on these uh, concerns, uh, Sarah, is it are, are people worried because this is just not a good investment of money and the people who are opposed to incentives, are, are they just worried about, you know, this isn't something we should be doing and, and there are better places to spend our, our, our cash? Or is there a broader sense that the nature of Overland Park is changing in ways that people don't like, or, or at least some people don't like? Which, it, I mean, maybe it's a combination of the two, but yeah. it seems like those are the two arguments against this trend. Yeah, I think those things can go hand in hand, that you know people moved out to the suburbs because there are good schools and there's more green space and these different things. And, and now high rises on Metcalf are not what they think they're buying in Oregon. Exactly, yeah, now you know a huge office building is being built in their backyard and so yes. people are upset over that. So I think those two things can work together and I think those are the biggest things that I'm hearing from residents who are upset. And I think, you know, just ha being caught off guard by development projects seems to really upset, you know, your typical city council right. meeting goers, um, which the city has been sort of working to address. They're now um, expanding notification to residents when developers have to hold neighborhood meetings with more residents now. Right. So they there, are there was also some concern, wasn't there, with the golf club? Talk to me about that. Yeah. That continues to percolate at the Yeah, council. so I think that meeting happening right before the election might have pushed some of these candidates over the edge. Um, and that's a $2 billion project. They're requesting uh, more than $200 million in different incentives. Been around for a while. It's, yeah, five years, several different iterations <laughs> of it. Um, people, residents have made it pretty clear, neighbors at least, that they do not want this. It's a floodplain. Right. Um, they're worried put concrete on top of a golf course that already floods and what's going to happen to their homes when they're already flooding. So that one is really controversial. It was kind of, you know, 
say what you will about them scheduling the public hearing for December 2nd <laughs> after the election. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't know if that's going to go through or not because they have turned it down. But in what's the, past. the what's the pushback from Mayor Gerlach and others, Carl Gerlach, uh, who uh, and other council members who obviously think at least some of these incentives are a good idea? And what's the argument they're making? Well, I think, like you mentioned before, that you can visibly see the changes. I mean, look at the downtown before it was kind of sleepy. Now it's really modern, contemporary. They're getting co-working spaces right. and all of these it Used to be car things. dealers and hamburger places. And exactly. Yeah, they're trying to clean up Metcalf. And they have, in 2015, they did set a new policy for um, tax increment financing that says we're going to really focus on Shawnee Mission Parkway and Metcalf Avenue in these areas that you know, do need a little bit of help. I think um, outgoing councilman Dave White, who's retiring, um, I think he gave a pretty solid argument to, um, you know, now that we've gotten what we want in the downtown, we've incentivized the people who are willing to take the first risk and build these things. You know, should we still be giving incentives to people who come in after the fact? Right. And so, you know, maybe things are kick-started and they'll dial back incentives. Maybe this is a sign that they will. Um, you know, tax increment financing requires a supermajority, so 9 out of 12 votes. Now we have four people who are more likely to vote no yeah, um, so on incentive deals. And the so. other thing that I think is just so fascinating about Overland Park in particular is you've seen all the development along Metcalf. You can go two blocks on either side of Metcalf and find aging housing stock and, and you know, things that will also need or, or present challenges to the city that Overland Park is not really familiar with, right? I mean, it, you know, uh, obviously they've had older housing for some time, but you get the sense that maybe, like Kansas City, you want to get away from the big glitzy projects and go to stuff that has more impact at the street level, or at least the pressure for that will grow. Do you sense that at all? Mm -hmm. or, or are the candidates talking about, hey, well, these apartments are nice, but how about these homes two blocks away? Mm. I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm not hearing people talk so much about aging homes, um, but you know, definitely infrastructure and streets, and are we scaling growth appropriately to where we can build out the infrastructure and utilities that we need? Um, and yeah, I, I think that's a good argument um, that could be made. And I guess I should say that, you know, people who are, you know, typical, um, in approving these development agreements, they also point to new jobs and new businesses and, you know, added tax roll, which maybe potentially will right. trickle down to those neighborhoods. And, and new things. energy and moving people back into the city. Yeah. Be because I've heard the argument, you know, you have to do this or you just die as a city. That's kind of the pushback, too, in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let, let, we're about out of time, but let me just go as broad as I can now and talk a little bit about the results last night and the chatter you're seeing, Sarah, on a national level about how the suburbs have been lost to the Republican Party and, and Donald Trump. And, and Johnson County seems in some ways to be ground zero for that phenomenon, if we believe what happened in 2018 was relevant when the uh, people of that uh, county and that district elected Sharice Davids and they provided the margin for Laura Davis in the governor's races, you know. Um, it, 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 th that trend seems to be the most important thing that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking now of Johnson County, doesn't it? Or give us your own observations about that. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, personally, I have noticed that. And I've noticed it come down at the local level where, you know, like you mentioned, we elected Sharice Davids. Um, Some of her people were actually elected yesterday, yeah. were they not? Yeah. I mean, they were energized by her candidacy. 
They've run for local government. I mean, that the, you know, that sort of grassroots, quasi-liberal uh, candidate was almost unheard of in Johnson County 25 years ago, and now mm. it seems to be on the ascendance. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Um, Benjamin Dickens and Roland Park, for example, an openly gay candidate um, right. won. Roland Park's a little more liberal, you could argue, right, but right. you know, a lot of women, like I mentioned, ran and won. And yeah, I think they are have been encouraged by seeing people who traditionally you wouldn't think of getting elected to office in Kansas winning. Um, and then obviously getting firsthand experience volunteering for Sharice right. Davids made a right. big difference for but, but if Johnson Countyans walk away from the Republican Party, that has some an enormous impact implications for the Republican Party in Kansas. I mean, that's the traditional base, as you know, for for Republican candidates up and down the ballot. And it just seems like yesterday's results, combined with what happened in 2018, and this broader trend of energy from women, largely, who are upset with Donald Trump, all seem to be combining to show us that Johnson County is really changing politically as well as physically. Do you share that view or not? Yeah, I think you can definitely point to that and argue that, um, and people are. Um, I think, you know, demographics are getting younger. There's more people of color. There's more low-income people. There's more immigrants. You know, it's kind of reflecting the changing demographics of the county, where before it, it would be all rich white people, um, right, older right. people, which definitely Bedroom still, communities. I mean, yeah. they used to write about that, you know, where where you just drove home, you slept, and you went to work in Kansas City. That doesn't seem to be the, the case anymore. And again, you're getting apartments in Overland Park, and there it, it's just really the face and really the politics of Johnson County seems to be changing. Now, you know, I've talked to people say, well, it just looks like that. It's, you know, it bounces back and forth. That may be true to some degree. And things like good schools and, uh, you know, remain an important thing. But we saw in other states where suburban voters have turned their back to some degree on Republicans. And it seems like Johnson County is part of that trend. Yeah, I think you could say that. I think, like I said before, I don't, I didn't see a huge blue wave of local candidates. But I'm also, you know, nobody at the local level wants to say, well, almost nobody will say it because there is one county commissioner who will say this. But um, almost yeah, nobody at the local I think level. We know who that is. Yeah, will say, you know, we don't want local elections to be partisan. You know, it hurts what we're trying to do. You know, deciding what road to build next should not be a partisan issue. Right. And so, you know, maybe that played a little bit of a factor into it too. But I think. As far as engagement goes, yes, I think you could definitely argue that with right. the list of candidates we had this time around. Sarah Ritter with the Star Johnson County Bureau Chief. Is that what they call you or what? what do you have an official <laughs> I'll title? Take it. Yeah, you'll take it. Is well, that a promotion? You're officially anointed the Bureau Chief. <laughs> and you did a great job, and we thank you so much Thanks for coming for by to me. talk about it. And uh, we'll want to keep an eye on Johnson County in 2020, obviously, uh, as this phenomenon plays out in bigger races other than municipal races. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much. Again, Sarah Ritter with The Star, and I am Dave Helling with The Star's editorial board, and you have been on Deep Background. 